Hi there, you're listening to the Unabridged Christian Fiction Audiobook Podcast. I'm your host, Alana Terry, and this season of the Unabridged Podcast is the Terror in the Sky series. This is an unforgettable, fast-paced collection of six novellas that tell you the story of what happens when multiple strangers board a doomed flight. I hope that you enjoy this episode of the Unabridged Christian Fiction Audiobook Podcast. Chapter 5 While Kennedy and I were wasting our time talking about nothing at all significant— I was still eyeing that big man in the Hawaiian and the teen he was with. At one point, he leaned over and said something to her, and she pulled away. It happened so fast, I can't be certain I actually saw it, but I could have sworn he yanked her by the hair. That's when I finally did tell the flight attendant, Tracy, the one whose name I'll never forget— the one whose family background I've checked online a hundred times to see if there's anything more to learn about her. Mother of two. The family's trying to stay out of the public eye. Yeah, good luck with that. But one picture from a family vacation has been all over the press. It's Tracy and her kids, out camping in the woods somewhere. She was married, too, so I kind of assume her husband was the invisible man behind a camera. And they look so happy, so happy and healthy, so alive. I told Tracy that this man pulled that girl's hair back, mentioned that she looked super uncomfortable with him. I don't know if this is where your mind goes or not, but I immediately started to think human trafficking. It's absolutely ridiculous how many Americans are convinced that sort of stuff doesn't happen in their own backyards. I'm pretty sensitive to it. As a feminist, even as a halfway decent human being, there's no way I can stand for any sort of enforced slavery. It's terrible, and absolutely disgusting, if you ask me, how many smug suburbanites sit in their comfortable middle-class privilege and assume that any girl any child who's subjected to rape, violence, and exploitation on an hourly basis must like the life she's chosen. So, yeah, you probably don't want to get me started on that. But that's exactly where my mind went. Strange man flying across the state borders with a teen girl who's obviously uncomfortable with him? No, I'm not paranoid to have worried that's what was going on. I didn't tell Tracy all of my suspicions. You'd be proud of me. I spared her the lecture, the statistics, the stories of trafficked girls I've read online. But I did tell her about how that man pulled her hair and yanked her head back. I was sort of thinking she'd poo-poo it away, but she was actually very professional about the whole thing. Thanks for bringing this to our attention, and we'll definitely keep our eyes on them, that sort of thing. It's nice to have your concerns validated. And then we waited. Except what we thought we were waiting for was the plane to land in Detroit. I'm so ashamed to think that after I brought up my observations to Tracy, my biggest concern was whether or not I'd join Math Babe for drinks. We had several hours layover, 
but I didn't want to ditch Kennedy or make her feel like the third wheel. It's kind of funny, since she's the one who not only saved my life that day, but also introduced me to the Lord. But at the time, I still felt like I was the one who was looking out for her. She was real sheltered growing up, at least in some ways. Private, all-girls school, paranoid, safety-addicted father breathing down her neck, stay-at-home mom baking cookies every day of the week, that sort of thing. It could have been any upper-class American suburb, except the only difference was it was overseas. You should have seen my face last year when I learned my college roommate grew up as some missionary kid. I was totally convinced she'd be this backwards, socially incompetent child who wore Catholic schoolgirl uniforms, and I'm not talking about the Halloween party kind, by the way. So I was pleasantly surprised to discover just how normal Kennedy actually was. If spending five hours a day studying for a test that's still two weeks away can ever be considered normal... The point I'm trying to make is I felt like it was my job on campus to look out for Kennedy. She had this whole international city chic thing going on, but in other areas, she was totally clueless. Like the first time one of my theater friends and I decided to medicinally help ourselves reach a state of deeper relaxation, if you get what I'm saying, Kennedy came back to our room a few hours later and seriously had no idea what the smell was. She asked me if I had put on some new kind of perfume. I should point out that I'm doing my best to give up that sort of thing now that I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to lie or pretend that I didn't come from a pretty hard partying background. I actually used to pity Kennedy for being so uptight, thought it was my job to teach her how to let her hair down, both metaphorically as well as literally. I thought she was sheltered and naive for her beliefs. And I'll go ahead and admit that I teased her sometimes. It was all in good nature, I should mention. She never got angry, never fought back. On the other hand, she didn't do what some Christians might have done and made the practicing of her faith that much more obnoxious just to spite me. No, she kept on living her quiet Christian life, never realizing how closely I was watching, never realizing that with each passing week, my respect for her grew more and more, never guessing that when I came face to face with death on that doomed flight to Detroit, it was the God she served so quietly and steadfastly that I'd call on to come and rescue us both. Chapter 6 Okay, so this is admittedly a little bit of a sidetrack, but can someone please explain to me why the majority of Christians today seem so against environmental progress? I mean, I see how your faith will impact your politics when it comes to things like abortion. I totally get that. But seriously, when did conservative Christians decide to leave the environmental debate up to everyone else to fight over? Doesn't God, in the very first book of the Bible, put humans in charge of taking care of the earth? Hello? 
I've only been a Christian for a few weeks now, and I know there's still a ton I need to learn. I also know that my specific political leanings may not line up a hundred percent with the majority of evangelical Christians, and that's fine with me. I figure that God's judging me based on how much I actually meant it when I asked him to forgive my sins, as opposed to how I'll choose to vote in the next election. But I'm not off my soapbox yet. I just need another minute. And yes, this totally does tie into my near-death experience on that doomed flight to Detroit. I'll get there. Did you know that one of the biggest reasons I never even dreamed of becoming a Christian myself was because I thought I'd have to dye my hair back to its natural brunette and start voting for the other guys? Seriously, that's honestly what I thought Christianity was. That's why I'm saying I'm so glad God doesn't judge me based on which box I check when I go to the polls. I already told you how upset I get about human trafficking, but now I need to talk for a minute about environmental justice. I took a whole course last semester, and I'm pretty well studied up on it. Did you know that if you go up to a typical pastor and say, hey, do you know what environmental justice is? You're likely to either get a blank stare or some kind of tirade about how global warming is a hoax. But that has nothing to do with environmental justice. You want a living example? Take the Flint water supply. There's lead in the pipes and no way to fix it. Apparently, it would cost far less to relocate the entire Flint community than to figure out which pipes are leaking lead and poisoning Flint's children and adults. That's bad. I'm pretty sure we can all agree on that, no matter where we lie on the political spectrum, right? But there's more. This isn't just about clean water. This is about class distinction. Because what are you going to do if you're a professional working in Flint, making a multi-six-figure income a year, and you find out the water there is poisoning you and your family, and nobody's going to do anything to fix it? You move. Worst case scenario? Maybe your house forecloses, because who's going to buy land in Flint? So your credit score takes a hit. But you've got the money, the resources, and the savings account to start over. Goodbye, Flint. Hello, water supply that isn't going to kill you. Easy as pie. Now imagine you're an immigrant single mother. You're working two jobs just to put food on the table because your income's just high enough you don't qualify for food stamps and just low enough that you can't afford anything. You've got three kids. Those kids have to eat. The baby needs diapers. Oh, and since you're working all the time... You have to pay for all that baby formula. The problem? The water you're mixing with your baby's formula will eventually kill her. So what are your options? Well, you can buy bottled water. Except, oops, that costs more money than you have and you're already diluting your formula to make it stretch and worried that your baby's health might suffer as a result. Besides, even if you give her purified water to drink... What happens when she needs to wash her hands or take a bath? She's still soaking in poison through that soft, porous skin of hers. So maybe you wait for the government to come and fix things. 
After all, poisoned drinking water certainly should fall under the category of a national emergency. Except the government's uncomfortably silent on the matter. I wonder why that is. Could it be because those with the loudest political voices have already taken their trust funds and their retirement accounts and moved away? Back to choices, then. Because, after all, this is America, the land of freedom. You have the right to live anywhere you want. Don't need the state's permission to move to a new town. Except how are you going to afford a moving van or a safety deposit on a new apartment? And what about the fact that you're too busy working your two jobs just to keep the kids from starving that you literally can't start over? And so you stay. And each and every time you fill up that baby's bottle, even though you're using a filter and hoping that will help even just a little, you have to wonder if, while nourishing your daughter, you're also killing her. Slowly. Methodically. Because this is what happens when you're poor and voiceless and living in the land of the free. Am I off my soapbox? I suppose for now. But I just had to get that off my chest. Going back to what happened on that flight... There's absolutely no excuse for murdering an innocent victim in cold blood. No reason anyone should stand up and shoot a flight attendant execution style. Nor is there any reason whatsoever in which it is justified to tamper with a flight carrying hundreds of people, people who are going to die because of your callous decisions. Sometimes, when I wake up from nightmares, the sound of gunshots reverberating in a stark airplane cabin in my ears and the scent of smoke in my nose, I'm tempted to hate the men who did this. Except I can't. I can't hate them because, even though I could never justify their actions, I understand exactly why they felt this act of homegrown terrorism was the only solution to their plight. Chapter 7 Before going on, I'd like to apologize to you for my little mini-rant back there. Probably wasn't one of my finest moments, I'll be honest, but I've read some of the news articles involving the crash lately, and a lot of people are asking those kinds of questions. If things were so bad in Detroit, why didn't they just leave? Why'd they hijack a flight with hundreds of innocent passengers on it when they could have just telephoned their state representative? I've made myself a promise not to go off on another tirade. Suffice it to say that comments like these really get under my skin. If I were slightly less self-aware, I might even wonder if this was a case of Stockholm Syndrome. If I'm sympathizing with the terrorists who nearly killed me for some twisted psychological reason or other. But I'd been studying what was going on with Brown Elementary School over there in Detroit for months. I already knew which side of the aisle I was on. Nearly losing my life to a couple desperate, deranged terrorists didn't change that. Not at all. But I suppose I'm getting ahead of myself. Kennedy's the one who should tell you about the letter, 
She was the one who got it, but it completely confirmed every disgusting suspicion I had about that man in the Hawaiian shirt and the girl he was with. Everything except for the trafficking angle, at least. I didn't see it happen, but Kennedy got up to use the bathroom. She had to go to the front of the plane because there just so happened to be a man planting a bomb in the lavatories in the back. Of course, none of us knew it at the time. We just thought he'd fallen on the wrong side of an argument with a taco truck on his drive to the airport. I keep trying to remember what I was doing when that girl reached out to Kennedy for help. It's not like I thought it was my duty to stare at my roommate as she walked all the way up the aisle just to use the bathroom on an airplane. Truth be told, I was probably wasting time on my phone, or maybe touching up my makeup since we were now less than an hour away from Detroit, and I was still seriously considering taking a quick detour to go on a date with Math Babe. I heard the man yell first, and I looked up and saw him shouting at Kennedy. The girl he was with, the teen I'd had my eye on, was terrified. I wouldn't even say she screamed for help. It was more like a squeal, like something you'd hear from a dying animal. Everything's a little fuzzy in my mind as I recall it, maybe because it was so shocking, or maybe because watching someone yell at your roommate and hearing a terrified teen screaming, Help! I've been kidnapped! isn't as traumatizing as nearly dying in a fiery plane crash. But there I go again, getting ahead of myself. The girl was screaming. Kennedy stood there, dazed. Not that I can blame her. I doubt I'd have had any sense to do anything different. A man in a suit jumped out of his seat in an instant. The air marshal. The hero coming to save the day. The girl kept shouting, He's kidnapping me! The air marshal got the Hawaiian shirt dude in handcuffs, and everyone lived happily and safely ever after. I wish. Because, as it turned out, the main point of the whole scene was to get the air marshal to reveal himself. Couple quick moves, I don't even remember them, they were so fast, and the air marshal was knocked out. The guy in the Hawaiian shirt grabbed the officer's gun, gave it to this other man who was in on the entire thing, and we were officially hostages. There's this type of therapy where you go back and relive traumatizing events, but you do it in this almost dreamlike state where you're in control of the outcome. So you can go back and revisit the moment of terror and give it any ending you want. I haven't been to any actual psychologist or anything, but I've tried this little technique on myself from time to time. And here's my favorite out of all the happy ending scenarios I've come up with. First of all, who comes to the rescue but Math Babe? I've started to feel awful I've forgotten his name, so in my imagination I call him Raoul. Raoul jumps out of his seat, halfway graded math papers flying everywhere. Stop! He shouts in a deep, husky voice. And then there's this fairly exciting but totally one-sided scuffle the end result of which is both hijackers knocked out and bloody. Passengers cheer, the air marshal wakes from his beauty sleep, his assailants are bound and tied, 
and we all land safely at the Detroit airport, where Raoul and I share extravagant tapas and wine. End of story. Pretty good one, isn't it? I was somewhat proud of it. But of course, if that's what really happened, I wouldn't have become a Christian. Which leads me to a question I've been wrestling with for weeks. Did God cause our plane to get hijacked because he knew that experience is what it would take to wake me up and bring me to my senses? What about the people who died? What about that poor kidnapped girl? The more I think about it, the more I hate the thought that God wanted the plane to crash just so my soul could be saved. I mean, I'm already dealing with enough survivor's guilt as it is. I'm just going to leave it at, I have absolutely no idea. Maybe I'll ask Kennedy's pastor or something. He seems to have all the answers, which is just fine because I'm still so brand new to this whole Christian thing and can't be expected to know it all. So then, we've covered the somewhat uneventful beginning of the flight. I've told you about Hawaiian Shirt and his partner beating up the air marshal and knocking him out. I've given you my thoughts on the politics that led up to the terrorist attack. So now, I guess it's time to dive into all the details of what happened next. Chapter 8 General had the air marshal's gun, and I have no idea why he took to calling himself General, but he did. His name's not what's important. What mattered is he had the gun, which meant from that moment on, he was the one calling all the shots. I'll go back to that first minute or two. It's hard to describe the absolute chaos in the cabin, like you could literally feel the fear and confusion in the air. I think that's what he was counting on, because, seriously, let's do the math. One gun. How many bullets could that be, right? I mean, it wasn't like it was this big automatic assault rifle or anything. It was just your ordinary run-of-the-mill pistol. What's that, like six bullets? And how many of us passengers? Several hundred, right? It's not like he could have killed us all. But what do you do when someone starts yelling and calling himself general and waving a gun around in a crowded airplane cabin? You freeze up. You turn off your brain except the one tiny fraction of it that's necessary for your survival, and you do whatever he tells you to do. Which is exactly what we did. General ordered us to get out our phones. He wanted us recording everything he had to say, his big manifesto. And maybe it doesn't come as a surprise to you after my tirade a little bit earlier, but General was a dad concerned about his children's safety. We're back to Michigan and environmental justice. I'm telling you, it's a real thing. If someone's willing to execute innocent bystanders and crash an entire airplane— You'd better believe it's a thing. A very serious thing. Brown Elementary School. That's where General's kids were enrolled. Detroit's dirty little secret. And by dirty, I mean it in both the literal and nuanced sense of the word. 
dirty because there was arsenic in the soil, which at one point had been a dumping ground for a pharmaceutical tech company. The area was so toxic, grown men on the construction crews were landing in the ER. Now, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you hate environmentalists and think that vegans and Greenpeace are minions of the Antichrist. But seriously, who would ever be okay with building an elementary school in a hazardous waste zone? Now, obviously, I'm not saying that the answer to this debacle would be to kidnap a girl, knock out an air marshal, and take over a plane. That's just lunacy. But the inciting event, the anger and the injustice, I'm all over that. General took his good old time telling the cameras all about how unfair it was, how the superintendent was to blame, how Detroit had miserably and egregiously let down its children. And you know, if it weren't for the fact that he'd just hijacked our airplane and was waving that gun around, I might have felt more inclined to give him a good old-fashioned amen or two. But obviously, none of that goes through your head when you see a crazy man waving a gun around. You're not thinking about those poor kids in Detroit whose health is jeopardized on a daily basis just to save the district a couple extra bucks. You're not feeling the frustration of these parents who are mostly working-class, immigrant, and minority families who lack the political clout to stand up for their kids. No, you're staring at that gun wondering what would happen to the cabin pressure if it went off, wondering if the metal hull of the airplane was built to be bulletproof, wondering if it would be scarier to die in a plane crash or by gunshot wounds, hoping he doesn't notice you. And then, when you get your wish, that means you're left to feel both relieved and guilt-ridden for the rest of your life because he's turned his wrath on someone else. Thanks for listening to the Unabridged Christian Fiction Audiobook Podcast. This has been the Terror in the Sky series, written by me, Alana Terry, and narrated by Becky Dowdy. If you want to listen to or read this entire series without interruptions, you can look for the Terror in the Sky series by Alana Terry wherever you shop for ebooks, paperbacks, or audiobooks.